Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you're talking about, and so are we in the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me, as always, is transfer guru or expert, as he's been described in the last seven days, which I quite like there, Duncan, given you're um, obviously a graduated doctor. Um, uh, and today we have lots, lots, lots of news. We're going to start with Manchester United, Duncan. We um, did brick the news on the transfer window that Mino Raiola was struggling to find a buyer for Paul Pogba. Um, however, um, in the wake of the conversations that uh, his agent, Mina Raiola, has been having, um, I think more or less in public rather than in private, uh, where he obviously uh, slagged off the Old Trafford Club and then offered an olive branch to um, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer regarding Pogba's future. It's our information that Pogba has since had conversations with Manchester United executives, uh, including Matt Judge and Ed Woodward, regarding a way to find, um, let's just say, an agreement or some kind of uh, compromise to Pogba's situation. Um, United, I think, are now in the position where they accept uh, the 105, 110 million euro fee they're demanding for the France international midfielder is not going to be met. Uh, full on by any suitors in Europe, including Juventus and Real Madrid, who are the two who have been mentioned most. And instead, Raula is now Duncan. Uh, I suppose we could say we, we always say he wants a slice, but he's going to accept half a slice um, because it's Raula who has proposed that he can market his client uh, to willing clubs at a sort of sixty million pounds plus add-ons based on uh, we're not in his new club. He wins the Champions League or wins the National League, etc., etc. Duncan, do you think this is something which is going to be attractive to Manchester United or do you think they're going to hold out for that fee that they paid for Pogba um, initially and, and, and not accept this kind of compromise situation? Look, it's getting to the point where they have to make a decision over what they do. And I think that decision will be informed, um, one, by Pogba's recovery from the ankle problems he's having, but two, by the the, the form of, of Bruno Fernandes, who um, won the game for Manchester United at the weekend, um, deputised in that kind of creative role that Paul Pogba had been important to in Uli Gunnar Solskjaer's planning, um, effectively, he he was the difference maker, the the, the man who ran into um, the right space to draw Ben Foster into fouling him uh, to win the penalty and to convert then the penalty with a plum, which is something, of course, that Paul Pogba has struggled to do um, at Manchester United um, in recent times. Um, and I think it's interesting if you listen to Uli Gunnar Solskjaer's post-match press conference where he's asked a lot about Bruno Fernandes and asked about the way he's settled into the club and the confidence, the way he's demanded play, um, the way he's adapted much quicker than many players 
would play and also talks about him being a number 10 uh, is asked is that the role you see him playing in all the time he says well number 10 and also as a box to box midfielder he can play anywhere in midfield he can play in the two um, he's a player who's played in every position in midfield who is the other man in Manchester United squad who fits that description what's Paul Pogba so there you have the replacement already purchased and um, unless the, the plan is to have both of them in the squad, um, it seems that the, the direction of travel is clear from Manchester United and Solskjaer's point of view that Bruno Fernandes is a replacement. Now we have to get as much money for the troublemaker um, and the player who has been injured for the majority of the season as, as possible and try and get the problem that is Mino Raiola um, off our backs. Um, it's difficult to see any other logical solution to this, any other pragmatic solution to this. United have had the opportunity in the last two summers to um, divest themselves of Paul Pogba's problems and have decided as a club not to do so. And you have to say that what they have received in return is a, a little golden period um, after Jose Mourinho was sacked as manager um, when Pogba probably produced his best football in a Manchester United shirt. And I, I think it's pretty easy to realise he did so because he had a point to prove because Mourinho had called him a virus in front of the rest of the dressing room, had made it clear that, that um, he'd done everything he could do to try and get Pogba to be the player he should be capable of becoming. And Pogba had not responded appropriately, in fact, when when Mourinho had made him captain and... Um, put him on penalty duties. Pogba's response was to go to the press after um, a game that hadn't been won and, and, and criticise the tactics and say that Manchester United had to play attack, attack, attack. Um, so this is this is a long time coming and, and there, there comes a point where you just have to bite the bullet and say, well, we're not going to get 160 million euros for this player because there are, as Mino Raiola has now said publicly, there are a very limited number of clubs who are able to buy this player. There are a very limited number of clubs who are able to pay his wages. Um, Real Madrid did not do it last summer, uh, partly because that was Zinedine Zidane's idea and Florentino Perez was opposed to the idea and preparing to um, get rid of Zidane as coach. Um, Juventus are interested, but Juventus have their own financial problems uh, to solve. Paris Saint-Germain, probably the only other realistic candidate out there, possibly, as we mentioned last week, Inter, um, if they uh, find the capital to further invest in that squad next summer but um, there are limited options Pogba's getting older he's not done himself any favours in the last two to three years of his career so £60 million pounds as a basic with add-ons um, becomes realistic as a as a fee and, and something that might be allow Raiola to go to those clubs and tempt them in to take a player like Pogba um, that would result in a very significant loss for Manchester United in real terms because you remember they paid a record agent's fee to Raiola to do the deal. They, they, they gave Pogba the highest salary at the club at the time. They um, 
they paid they paid significant loyalty bonuses and signing on fees to Pogba. It's it's been a financial mistake, and I think you can say a sporting mistake for them to bring him back to the club. Um, but in this case, Ed Woodward, I think, needs to realise that you can't make a profit on all of those deals and you can't hang on forever in the hope that a player's value will reinflate and, and you can get the money which makes the balance sheet look good. Um, take that money. It's, in a sense, it's already been spent on Bruno Fernandes. And again, Solskjaer, when he talked about the, the Fernandes deal, said it was part of next summer's spend brought forward. Um, and move on with, uh, with, with a player who actually wants to be at the club um, and actually feels that, that Manchester United is the right platform for him to achieve on. It seems something there are two significant factors here. One is that Fred and Bruno Fernandes have gelled very quickly, especially considering the small amount of time that uh, the Portuguese international has been at Old Trafford. Uh, but Fred himself has certainly grown into a role at United where I think even Jose Mourinho, who signed him, um, said, I wish he was that player when I was still at Old Trafford, I might still be there. Um, but maybe more significantly is that United and Raiola have reached some kind of at least peace or truce with regards to the uh, war awards, which has obviously been waged over um, Pogba in the last sort of year for sure. And if peace breaks out and that both sides now agree that the best thing is for the player to move on, then that uh, goodwill, if you like, or, or at least um, compromise on both sides suggests that the, a deal can be done. And that's something which, of course, clubs who have been interested in buying Pogba have certainly been uncertain about, that's for sure. So if United have indeed given Pogba, uh, sorry, Raiola, the mandate to sell Pogba at a lower rate for upfront money. And remember, um, you're not talking about £60 million or €80 million Euros up front. This is a, a fee that can be paid over the course of a contract of four or five years. So uh, even at a club like Juventus, where they've spent a lot of money, and as you mentioned, Duncan, um, have financial issues, it gives United a chance to get rid of what Mourinho, as you quoted, Duncan said, was a virus in the dressing room, and also gives a clean sheet to Bruno Fernandes to possibly fulfil these, I think, quite remarkable comparisons that have been made uh, for him about being in the new Paul Scholes or in line with Juan Sebastian Veron. I'm not quite sure where the comparisons go there because obviously Veron didn't exactly succeed at Manchester United uh, despite being a very, very talented player. Um, I also saw Peter Crouch say that uh, Manchester United found a new canton or a new hero in Bruno Fernandes. Um, do you think he can live up to those um, plaudits and expectations after only just three league games? Well, I think I think the phrase Solskjaer used was a mix between Scholes and Veron. Um, and, so and so yeah. in, in, injured and temperamental then? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't don't think that was the the, the point he was trying to make and uh, and arguing that he loved playing with Veron because of the way um, he saw 
um, attacking passes and, and put the ball in front of the striker um, to create chances for him, which is an interesting take given that Varon's um, career at Manchester United was obviously not um, a successful one and they had to shift him out to Chelsea in the end. Look, it's very early days for Fernandes. He's, he's clearly a talented player. Um, he clearly made the difference in a game where, again, Manchester United started badly against Watford. Um, some, you know, in Solskjaer's own, own words, the start we had was absolutely a shambles. You saw Solskjaer at the touchline after um, his defence had, had handed uh, the opportunity for a free shot and goal that, that Troitini didn't take because um, he, he thought he had more time and took two touches when he could have shot to here from eight yards. In the first few minutes of the pitch, you see Solskjaer running to the touchline and, and instructing them to clear the ball forward. Um so he, he was actually changing his tactical instruction within four minutes of the match. Um, he Obviously, Solskjaer was telling the team to pass the ball at the back. It's a tactic he's used quite a lot. Uh, Watford had, had seen there was a weakness there, tried to exploit it and, and probably should have had a, a goal from it early on. It turned into that kind of game, which we've seen a lot with Manchester United, where they're, they're struggling to break through against well-organized opponents. But Fernandez made the difference. His run um, and his confidence in the ball and ability to draw Ben Foster in the foul made that difference and and uh, and altered things for them. Can he stick with it? Well, remember Harry Maguire. Remember the first few games of this season when Harry Maguire was being described as the, the new Franz Beckenbauer and the new Rio Ferdinand. Um, I'm, I would imagine the people who were saying that at the time on the strength of actually what a, a performance against Chelsea, which wasn't particularly convincing in, in many ways, um, would be regretting what they said about him having watched his performances through the season. Um, the pressure of being at Manchester United is immense and the expectation on these players is huge. And, uh, and, it's, and when the confidence goes and when uh, the... Flaws in your performances are highlighted and cost the team points. It becomes harder, and that's the real test of these players. But I, I think Bruno Fernandes is a better footballer than Harry Maguire. I mean, we, we said from the very start, uh, one of our most popular episodes was um, with Bernie Mandic, uh, an agent who, who we asked about what he thought about Manchester United paying £85 million for Harry Maguire, and he just reacted in, in shock. Um, and uh, was extremely critical of, of that fee for a player who clearly doesn't have the pace to be a top-level centre-back um, and has never even played a, a Champions League game. So that one was obviously, in the view of other experts in football, a mistaken signing. I think with Bruno Fernandes, they've got a better chance of getting a player who can who can rise to the level they need. Um but he will have to face that weight of expectation of one of the things will be that will be brought up against them if um, if things start to go badly, as Solskjaer describing him as a as a mix between Scholes and Veron. They're difficult. One of those one set of boots there is a very difficult set of boots to fill. Maybe because we're one of each, although I think they've got a different size feet. I'm not sure. I, I was watching the game yesterday, Duncan, and thinking of um, our good friend Sergio Cristinath, uh, our Portuguese football expert and, of course, co-director of the Portuguese CIA, um, telling us that 
the reason that Fernandez hadn't transferred last summer is because actually he's not that good. Um, that he's his stats kind of outweighed his actual quality. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, and I could be doing our, our man a, a disservice, but he did say that um, the goals he scored had come because he was playing a very poor sporting team, and he basically shot from anywhere, and that's why he had more shots than target. That's why he was top scorer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he said, Sergio said, and that's probably why no one's actually been persuaded to pay the buyout clause at Sporting half for him. And um, so it hadn't really surprised him that the move hadn't happened, apart from, of course, um, what we reported at the time, which was the chaotic agent situation. Now, he's not really shown that. He's shown much more than that um, in his time in England so far. I know it's early days, but I'm just wondering, is Bruno Fernandes more suited to English football than he was to Portuguese football? Is that why we're getting these quite storming performances? Look, I think it, it is very early days to judge. I think he's played well. I don't think, I wouldn't say we're seeing storming performances. He was the game changer on Sunday um, from a, you know, taking a moment in the game where he managed to break the opposition open and executed well to win the penalty and took the penalty well. But he wasn't, we're not, I don't think we saw a dominant midfielder running the game there. So there's so the there's ball into Martial for the, the second goal was brilliant, though, wasn't it? The yeah, look, him out. There, there are lots of good elements there, but um, you know, talking of him being a Paul Scholes is a is a very high plaudit indeed, and you've got to do that in a number of games against a range of opponents. There's no doubt he, as we said when, when we you know, were reporting on this transfer and we, we you know, broke this in, in great detail, he is a fit to the problems Manchester United have had. We said this is a player who will be able to break down defences when they, they get into difficult situations. The matches who can create chances and can score goals from distance. Um, so he has... He has added that improvement to them. Um, we also know that when Manchester United get the first goal in a game like that, they tend to they tend to go on and win it because the opponents then come out at them and they can use uh, the strength of of Anthony Martial and Mason Greenwood's pace um, and the quality of Mason Greenwood's finishing to get additional goals. It's the it's the first goal in the match that's been a problem for them. Um, I think. <laughs> One of the interesting comments Solskjaer made after the game was um, that uh, being asked about Luke Shaw and um, talking about how he was encouraging Luke Shaw to play more attacking football, he threw in this line that I, I keep encouraging them to do more of what they're good at. And when they listen, they'll be a good team. Now, that's for me, that's a fine thing to say when you won a match, but I think it's a, it's a bit of a dangerous thing to say because the implication of that are that Manchester United results this season. And what is it now? They've won 11, just 11 games from 27. Yep. In the league. In the, yeah. prim, in the, league. In the yeah. Premier League. The implication of that is that everything that's gone wrong this season is the players not listening to what the manager has told them. And I know for a fact that there are men in that training ground, in that camp, who do not believe. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is a top-level manager, aren't impressed by many of the things he's told them to do through his time as manager. And I, I doubt they'll be very impressed with the idea that 
everything that's gone wrong this season is them failing to listen to what Solskjaer has told them to do. Um, it's another comment that, you know, you see it coming out after a, a, a successful week in his context. So to, defeating Chelsea and not losing to Brugge when they could have lost that game. Um, and then this victory over Watford, you can see the relief in Solskjaer. But those kind of comments, I think, are um, are hostages to fortune when, when if things start going against him again. It's kind of the... Um version of the manager pulling his players out from under the bus, isn't it? <laughs> As in, you only survived that, that, that car crash incident because of me. Um, so well done you for listening and uh, well done me for pulling you out from under the bus. Probably the most talked about uh, issue of the weekend's Premier League football, Duncan, was yet again video assistant refereeing and in particular, the Chelsea versus Tottenham Hotspur match on Saturday lunchtime. Now, uh, I'm just going to remind anyone who didn't see it, or if you want to see it, and I'm going to hand it over to you, uh, of what Gary Lineker said on Match of the Day. He said to Ian Wright, if VAR was a player, would you drop him? And Wrighty replied, mm, I'd drop him and fine him and then he would never play again. Uh, Duncan, will VAR ever play again? Sadly, it will continue to play, um, and it will continue to play next season. It, I think it shouldn't play again. I think we've, we've had a season where we, we've seen um, the problems with the system. Um, I think, if anything, they're increasing through the season. Um, I think this, this weekend was interesting. You talk about that decision um, not to send off Giovanni Lo Celso in the Chelsea game, which, again, the consensus is that it was a clear red card, just as there was a clear red card when Harry Maguire um, kicked Michi Batshuayi in, in an area which hurts the most um, on the Monday night game, right in front front Frank Lampard on the touchline. Similar situation where the referee's possibly unsighted with the initial incident. Um, the video assistant referee doesn't think it's a serious error, doesn't overrule him, takes quite a long time to make that decision. And the referee in the stadium has stood there, um, not very far from the monitor, not looking at the monitor, not having the opportunity to make the decision himself. The wrong decision is taken. Huge controversy over it. Um, PGMOL are so embarrassed that Mike Riley, we're told, gets on the phone to Stockley Park and says, put out um, a message to the media that we accept that David Coote, the video assistant referee, got that decision wrong. Get Dermot Gallagher, the man who, who pushes the, the Premier League official line on television and Premier League television, to say he got it wrong. Um, Coote isn't informed of that until he's finished the game. And amazingly, remains in place as the VAR for the evening game against uh, between Manchester City and Leicester City and gives two more um, hugely controversial VAR decisions. The first where Kevin De Bruyne raises his hands in front of his face to uh, stop a James Madison free kick and a penalty is not given. Um, and then later in the game, gives a penalty against Leicester City for handball um, when Dennis Pratt gets in the way of a, um, 
Okay, Gundogan shot. So it's one of those games where the same person is is giving a penalty for an incident that in any assessment based on the way the rules are set up at the moment um, was less of a penalty than the one he didn't give against Kevin De Bruyne. If you look at the way the handball rule, the handball rule is a mess, but if you look at the way it's, it's written at the moment, then Kevin De Bruyne moving his hands in front of his face to stop the free kick hitting him in the face is a handball and therefore a penalty. Dennis Pratt probably with his hand away from the body with the, the, the way the rules are framed at the moment, you can make an argument that it should be a penalty. Certainly Brendan Rodgers accepted that it was correct to give a penalty in that particular incident. But you can't have a man watch with the ability to watch this incident multiple times on video, deciding that Kevin De Bruyne isn't a penalty in the same match as he, he gives a penalty to the opposition for the same offence. Just makes... Um, a mockery over the refereeing decisions and where the referee on the field to do that you can have sympathy with him because he has the view he has um, might not um, see the situation pro properly but once you've got multiple opportunities to look at it you have to get these things right but as we've said for, about VAR from the very start it's subjective the, the protocol they use is problematic because the, the, the VARs are instructed only to overturn on, on clear and obvious errors, which is sensible in many ways because you don't want a guy in a box refereeing the game in place of the official on the pitch. But the official on the pitch now knows that he has someone in the studio checking what he's doing. And if there's a, a decision he's not sure about, he can defer to the person in the studio um, to make the decision for him. Unfortunately, the person in the studio has been instructed only to do so when it's a clear and obvious error. So quite often refuses to overturn. And then you have a situation where what would in normal circumstances have been given as a foul or a red card is left hanging in the air because neither the, the on-pitch referee or the VAR has the courage to make the decision. The, the same day we have Burnley-Bournemouth where um, Bournemouth lose a goal because of a marginal handball um, by Philip Billing when the ball comes off his, looks like the point of his shoulder before Josh, Josh King scores. Um, so they lose that one on, on our um, uh, infamous Schrodinger's handball law, which has a different application to attackers than it does to defenders. Then they score... Uh, with uh, uh, following a, a ball that again hits one of their players' shoulders, Adam Smith, in their penalty area. They go up the end of, other end of the pitch and score a goal. The VAR looks at it, decides there's been handball in the build-up to the goal, gives a foul for handball in the build-up to the goal because it's in the penalty area, it's a penalty. And uh, and they get they get double penalised by um, the, the ability the VAR has to intervene in these situations. And this ridiculous rule that the English authorities brought in at the start of the season to try and um, get rid of the embarrassment they had over not following FIFA rules on handball last season. The whole thing is a mess. But I think the, the big worry here is that instead of people targeting the system, you're seeing people saying, oh, look, David Cook made two mistakes in that match. Um, it's 
question of the individual VAR making too many errors. It's a question of Mike Riley not being able to organise VAR properly. VAR as a system is fine. We just need to change the, the people running the system. And you've got a number of former referees who are positioning themselves to take over from Mike Riley. Um, I think there's there's a call for ex-referees to, to take over VAR duties. Um, I think we're losing focus here on the fact that the, the system itself and the rules that have been implemented this season are the fundamental problems on top of bad refereeing personnel, which we've had in the Premier League for a long time. And I think it's dangerous if we, we switch away from the fundamental problem, which is the rules and, and the implementation of the rules, to the, um, the individuals who are on the pitch and in the TV studio. Duncan, is there resistance to admit that VAR is simply adding subjectivity onto subjectivity, a human error, which it can be occurred, obviously we know in refereeing decisions, onto human error when the interpretation of the initial decision is then changed? It's like almost standing in one of those um, elevators and hotels which have mirrors on all sides, and so all you can see is your reflection infinitely. And if you ask yourself, was that a penalty or not, no one would be able to give the right decision because it was infinite. Yeah, that, that's one of the essential problems of the system is the majority of football rules are subjective. Majority of the rules require a degree of interpretation by the referee as to whether it was a foul or not, whether it was a yellow card or not, whether it was a red card or not. Giovanni Lo Celso. Uh, David Coote's argument was that Aspilicueta slid in underneath him, therefore his foot was going to come down where Aspilicueta had tackled him. Lucelso had just been kind of half fouled by Rhys James on the touchline. I can see where Coote was coming from, but it was a red card offence because Lucelso comes down harder on Aspilicueta than he needs to. He doesn't attempt to get his, his boot out of the way. But that rule is subjective. It is open to the interpretation of the referee. The way it's framed, it's open to the interpretation of the referee. The, the, the fallacy of VAR is the idea that if you allow people to watch an incident on a screen, they will come to a coherent, correct decision every time. We knew this. We, we talked about this before the system came in. We said, look, what is the essence of, of much of football punditry? It's three people in a room discussing referees' decision. Um, a big chunk of what the television companies do is an assessment of whether referees got the decision right or not. How often do you actually see all those three people in the room agreeing that the referee got a controversial decision right? It just doesn't happen very often. And it's because of the nature of the laws. Um, but it's far more frustrating to the fans to see a man who has access to video give a subjective decision that they feel is wrong against them than it is for the, the, the man on the pitch to give it. And it has all these ramifications of interruption in the game, um, fans not knowing what has happened, not being able to celebrate properly, uh, the, 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 the use of offside and, and claiming that offside can be definitively decided by these video images and then a third of the way through the season we find out that actually the technology is not capable of it. The, the competition that you've seen in Serie A, for example, where referees 
resist the intervention of the VAR because the VAR is competing with them on a weekly basis to get the best fixture. So you get conflict between the referees over um, listening to the VAR or not, which I don't think we've seen in England yet, but it's not impossible. We'll, we'll see that down the line. There, there are so many problems caused by the system. It's not worth the small benefits of getting a few more decisions correct um, across the course of a season. I heard some talk, Duncan, in the wake of um, things that happened over the weekend that it was a step forward at least that VAR, or I should say PGMOL, had instructed a mea culpa regarding the Lo Celso tackle and Azpilicueta and saying that, well, at least now we've got a system where if the referee gets it wrong, and even the VAR in this case gets it wrong, that someone will take responsibility and say, it was a bad decision. It should have been a red card. Now, that's all very well, except that nothing actually happens. There's no consequence for the referee or the VR getting it wrong. Um, as we've seen in the past, referees who get big decisions wrong um, in big games in the Premier League get a, let's just say, inverted commas, holiday in the championship for a couple of weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, because the referee has made no decision on the pitch, there is no retrospective action with regards to Los so therefore no automatic red card and three game ban. So is there is it really an advance that the PGMOL have admitted uh, that they got it wrong? Is it or is that just basically lickspittle to you know those who like ourselves as pundits can see exactly why they've got it wrong to a certain extent it's good that they admit they make a mistake but again the the var who made that mistake was told after the game he'd made a mistake was asked to to look at the footage again um and apparently um recognized that he got it wrong apparently did not apologize for it himself what was left in place for the Leicester City, Manchester City game? There's a fundamental problem with asking referees to do two big high pressure matches, which is what you're getting with the early kickoff and the late kickoff, because those are, are the most appealing matches by definition. That's why the TV companies choose them in the same day. Uh, you know, there's there's obviously a great deal of concentration involved in getting these decisions right, and there's pressure on the VARs. Okay, physically, they don't have the demands of running in the pitch, but they are still being put under pressure twice. So the guy is told, David Coote is told, you made a mistake. He's informed. We have apologised to the public, and we, you know, basically hung you out to try uh, over your mistake. Uh, by the way, can you carry on doing the Manchester City Leicester City game? And surprise, surprise, he makes another huge mistake in that game. Um, it's a mess. It's simply a mess. And football was better in the round without VAR than it is since its introduction. Well, as IFAB consider appointing Duncan Castles as their new VAR <laughs> uh, associate uh, director, um, we'll move on to some news in terms of Liverpool and possible movement in and out of Anfield this summer. 
um, as regular listeners will be aware, we have repeatedly and accurately reported the club's interest in RB Leipzig striker Timo Werner. Um, and after Werner's appearance uh, and goal against Tottenham Hotspur in the Champions League last round of 16 match last week, um, a bit of a loving, it's fair to say, Duncan, with regards to what Werner says in terms of links to Liverpool and how he thinks Klopp's the greatest coach in the world. None of this comes as a big surprise to our listeners because we have um, accurately, as I said, and consistently reported that Werner will join Liverpool, we believe, this summer. Now, I don't and cannot report anything which I think changes that. Although, interestingly, uh, news um, that the transfer window understands is that Roberto Firmino's representatives have been contacted by Bayern Munich in the last 10 days with regards to would he be willing to leave Anfield? Would he be interested in a return to the Bundesliga? And would he be interested in becoming part of Bayern's rebuild, which of course they have been planning now since the beginning of last season? Duncan, you have been um, at the forefront of this regarding Leroy Zani from uh, Manchester City. Um, I think we both agree that Firmino may well fit in very well with a Zani replacement of uh, Robert Lewandowski, who may well move on possibly to MLS in the summer. Um, could you see Firmino being a good fit at Bayern Munich? Well, he's a player who knows the Bundesliga well and, and uh, achieved the status that allowed him to go to Liverpool in the Bundesliga. Um, he's 28 now. So if you're going to take a player like that, then this would be the time to do it. Um, we know Lewandowski has been trying to get a move out of Bayern for some time using Pini Zahavi um, to push him around the, the more affluent clubs in Europe. Um, he will have to be replaced at a certain point um, by Bayern Munich. So you can see the sense there. I think the difficulty is going to be to get him out of Liverpool because he, you know, we've talked in the podcast that um, they're, they're, Liverpool have to look at the a replacement strategy for Sadio Mane, Mo Salah, who both have ambitions to play in Spain at some point in their career, are coveted by the biggest Spanish clubs. Um, Liverpool very much in control of the situation in terms of the length of their contracts. They place themselves at a point where they can choose most likely when they sell them and they can do so for a huge amount of money and bring in replacements such as Timo Werner, who you can see um, with his pace and, it, and his, uh, um, his physicality as being a fit to Klopp style of football uh, and, a, and a good alternative to either Salah or Mane. You can argue that Firmino is probably the harder one to replace because of that link, that complex link, shadow, nine role he plays um, and that the, the more creative element in his play. Um, probably that's a more difficult man to replace like for like and you have to get a, a more specific type of, of forward in there. So I, I think we, I would be surprised if you were to ask Liverpool which of the three they'd be happiest to lose, that Roberto Firmino would be the one they'd say, yeah, we'll, we'll let him go. Um, I think you've got to note that Firmino's last contract was in April 
2018. Liverpool have upgraded a lot of their players since then. They've put a huge number of players on very substantial salaries. There is scope for Firmino to get one of those substantial raises. If I was his agent, I would be welcoming conversations with Bayern Munich, finding out exactly how much they're prepared to, to pay my client, how much they're prepared to put up for a transfer fee, and bringing that information back to Liverpool and saying, well, we've got a substantial offer in Germany. Um, we like it here, but my client's getting to the age of 28. Um, it's difficult for him to turn down that kind of money. Can you uh, perhaps see yourselves matching or bettering it? Um, he's contracted until 2023, so Liverpool have got space in this one. They have the whip hand in terms of being able to hold him to his contract, but they've been very intelligent about satisfying the demands of the players that are important to them. And, and you, Ian, told us on the podcast last week about um, the, the way in which they were bringing their players' agents in to have discussions about their plans to try and find out if there was any intention on their part and any interest in moving elsewhere and, and to, to design a strategy, a recruitment strategy with in a, in a kind of sympathetic conversation um, with their key players in advance. And um, yeah, if I'm Firmino's agent, I am bringing that up in that conversation and seeing where, uh, where the best conclusion is. And if I'm Liverpool, I think I'm probably... Um, going to give Firmino a, a pay rise and retain him at the club. So the question is, Duncan, do you have time to do the IFAB role and be Firmino's agent? <laughs> Two jobs I will never be offered, so um, it's a kind of empty question, that one. Okay, how about uh, head coach of Manchester United? <laughs> Another job I'm not uh, qualified to do. Oh, the, the, the disappointment just saddens me. It really does. These are all rules I'd love to see you in. But um, then, you know, now this... it, does, it does have to be said Manchester United are good at appointing people who are not qualified for the positions that uh, they're given and they, you know, they and don't have experience um, at that level. So maybe I shouldn't give up and hope entirely on that one. I would argue you're absolutely qualified to be head coach of Manchester United. Certain people. It is Monday's Transfer Window podcast, which means we're going to end today with our hero and villain section. Um, Duncan, I'm going to ask you to um, please name your hero for the last few days in football. Um, I think the hero of the week has to be Frank Lampard, um, who, with, with that defeat of Tottenham at the weekend, became the first manager in the Premier League history to do a, a home and away double against Jose Mourinho, his his former mentor, in the same season, which is um, a remarkable achievement, particularly given the pressure that was on that game and um, Chelsea's poor run of recent results and the and the, the importance it had for Champions League qualification and uh, maybe that will get some of Lampard's um, numerous critics off his back for at least a, a, a short period of time. Yeah, very unusual in terms of um, that statistic, Duncan. Um, as we said before, I'm not sure that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer beating Chelsea twice in one season gets them a trophy, but I'm not sure that Frank... Uh, Lampard beating Jose Mourinho twice in one season gets my trophy either. But um, nonetheless, 
interesting statistic. My villain of the piece over the last few days, well, I say villain, I almost want to say hero. And also almost want to say it's not the person who you might know. Neymar's sister, Rafaela Santos, who has been lucky enough to have the pleasure of her brother, Neymar Jr.'s company, for the last six years during her birthday in March and, of course, at Carnival in uh, Rio uh, and in Brazil, the biggest celebration in the country's calendar year. We have reported this faithfully to you, uh, that Neymar has been someone who uh, has been loyal to his sister's birthday party. However, this season, it looked unlikely that um, he'd be able to make it. And ironically, it was because he himself injured his ribs in his own birthday party uh, with teammates uh, not just three weeks ago and missed three PSG games as a result. It did look like uh, Neymar may not make Rafaela's birthday, but then in the stunning 4-3 victory over Bordeaux last weekend, Neymar maybe, just maybe got a birthday card from his sister Rafaela in the shape of a yellow one in added time, which means, of course, that he is suspended for one league and match, giving him time to head uh, back to Rio for Carnival and for Rafaela's birthday. Well, who'd have thought it? Um, is he our hero? Is he our villain? I'm not sure. Maybe we should just make Rafaela our heroine. This has been Monday's Transfer Window podcast. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Please continue the debate with us, of course, on our social media channels. And that would be at Transfer Podcast on Twitter and also on Instagram and on Facebook at duncan.castles on Instagram and of course at Duncan Castles on Twitter at GarboSJ on Twitter and we will continue to um, raise the questions but also continue the debate with you guys um, as we go through the week if you like what you hear and we know that you do then please log on to iTunes and give us a five star review that helps us to enlarge the community and indeed make sure that everyone is involved in this particular debate about football uh, we'll be back on Wednesday uh, until then um, this is the Thinking Fans podcast the transfer window saying thanks for listening and see you Wednesday Wednesday